Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Um, in this podcast today, we're talking about um, marriage and uh, gender roles. We're talking a bit about um, sex and sexuality and, and sexual violence. And so I guess there's a bit of a content warning. Um, if you're driving or you're just not in a place, you're kind of just looks, looking for some light listening. Um, we are going to talk about some, some difficult stuff. So uh, make sure you are feeling good and safe to, to dive into that stuff before you continue here. Here we are. Welcome back. Episode five, Ephesians chapter five. Um, some of you, this is maybe the first podcast of the series you've listened to because someone recommended it to you. Um, because what we know about uh, the book of Ephesians, often if you grew up in uh, purity culture in the West, is the marriage headship text in Ephesians five. And we're going to dive into that today. Yay. Um, so uh, let's begin. Dallas, why don't you read for us Ephesians chapter five? Sure. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But fornication and impurity of any kind, or greed, must not even be mentioned among you, as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be associated with them, for once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake! Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as Christ is subject to, just as the church sorry, is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, 
so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Again, I'm going to kind of frame this the same way we did chapter four, like at the beginning, he's like, verse one, be imitators of God, be like God, Uh, a little different than become gods, Mm -hmm. right? Imitate God as beloved children. So how to be like God? Um, You're going to be like God as beloved children. Live in love as Christ loved us. So to imitate God is to be like Jesus. Um, And and Paul says it right off the bat. Here's how to be like Jesus. Um, Jesus gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first thing is self-emptying, sacrifice, love, little children. Um, That's going to be important. And then... um, He goes into specifics um, in in verse 3. Fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints, which should not be translated to mean don't bring forth accusations of abuse. Uh, We have to deal with that privately so as to not uh, tarnish the reputation of the church. That's not not what he means when he says don't even mention it. He means like there's no place because... um, Fornication, um, the way Paul means it, has to do with the opposite of giving yourself up in love. Fornication would be about uh, arrogant and and abusive, like taking, conquering, conquest. Um, Impurity and greed are the complete opposite of the way of, of Christ. So if we're being imitators of God as children who live like Christ and love like Christ, it would literally be impossible for there to be fornication, impurity, or greed um, in our midst. So even, um, I like that the English translation here is like obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. So when I grew up, that's more like you shouldn't say certain words when you stub your toe or make fart jokes at the table or something. Like that would be vulgar talk and silly instead of like locker room talk that we think is fine. Yeah. Well, you know, it was locker room talk. You mean like that whole long rant that was completely objectifying and degrading women? You know, it's just kind of how it is in like what, the locker room. Maybe that's more the vulgar talk and the obscene, silly talk that Paul's referring to uh, instead of, you know, not, I think once I got in trouble for saying like crap or like hell or damn or something like that, right? Yeah. I probably just like. 15 people stopped listening because I just said three vulgar, silly words. (laughs) I don't think that's our audience. Um, But yeah, I I think uh, it would be a pretty profound exercise to kind of go through some of these ideas word by word. Be like, what does it really mean? 
Um, so instead of any of that stuff, he says in verse 4, there should be thanksgiving. Because uh, fornicators and impure people, or people who are greedy, that is an idolater. An idolater. And what he means is um, when Jesus says, you cannot worship both God and money. If you choose money, you're an idolater. Um, so if you choose money, you don't have inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God because you probably don't need it. Um, and I, I think of that when people are like, well, I already have a pretty comfortable, awesome life here. Why would I give that up to do the hard work of like discipleship and being like Jesus? I don't need it. Okay, that's fine. Bless you. Um, but there are people who need it. They don't have that comfortable, uh, affluent, easy life. And the church exists for them. Uh, so in the same way, Jesus was always moving towards them. So anyway, that's uh, probably, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing. But um, there is this talk. And so let's just say for a moment, um, the word um, fornication, that's a, that's a sharp word. Like that's an immediately one of those like words that have been used. Um, I think of Awaken in particular, somewhat of a unique church in the like Baptist church world maybe, though every church maybe says that, I don't know. But like there's a lot of religious trauma and church trauma in people who've had texts like this weaponized against them. And so I don't know, Dallas, do you have any, how has this word fornication and like impurity been used in your world? growing up, like purity culture? I mean, in the church that I grew up in, I don't think I, I can't remember specific moments where I heard this word fornication. Um, because if you read, we never really read NRSV and that's how they translate the Greek word here. Um, but we, I grew up with like the NIV and the ESV. And so in there you hear like sexual immorality. So in like last episode, we were talking about like hierarchy hierarchy of sin it was always like sexual sin and that meant specifically like anything that was of a sexual nature of like two people outside of marriage and so when you talk about fornication that was always attributed to um any sort of sexual sin mm -hmm. or one up. person by themselves or one person by themselves yeah. yes yes very good point um yeah so all of that that was what fornication meant when I was growing up and part of that purity culture movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think if we did a survey, like a hundred different people, like give me an example of fornication, we might come up, come up with different examples. Cause it is a word that is somewhat open to interpretation. And when sure. we just emphasize like one, one part, like, sure. Like, you know, you've probably heard people be like, well, the Gentiles, like, like in the Roman Greco Roman world, like, um, kind of uh, sometimes even associated with like pagan religions. There could have been like orgies and like um, expressions of sexuality that would feel very unusual or unnormal for someone like me who grew up in like Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, it, it's just, I, I've never, it doesn't seem like a, a part of like the dominant culture. Maybe it is, I don't know. But so we could pick this like extreme example, like, yeah, don't do that. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't even know how I would do that if I wanted to. So. <laughs> Phew, good. Um, but then there, there maybe are other ways of, uh, maybe that word has even more uh, to it than just those kind of extreme examples of like sexual licentiousness. But I definitely grew up, yeah, like, like purity culture. Like I would always go to purity talks and um, sex before marriage was really, really, really bad. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, a guy in my theology degree, we were pretty good friends. Uh, 
we we worked together at some point and I remember a a lot of like really kind of painful microaggressions that would be spoken like yeah I don't think my when I get married one day I'm pretty sure my wife won't be a virgin oh really why why do you say that well because I'm not a virgin and I just don't think I'm like worthy of that what you think that's like a reward and you're going to be punished with like whoa like but that was a normal way of talking about people yeah. and marriage and sex and virginity and so there's a lot of shame and fear and and like uncertainty for a, a, a dating couple around like what are you allowed to do because in the ancient world you didn't date for three years get engaged plan a wedding for a year and then get married and have like a gorgeous honeymoon yeah you you might have like this is the person you're gonna marry tomorrow you never had to like wonder what you're allowed to do when you're hanging out and that uh, it's done a lot of damage because we don't really want to talk about it because it's vulgar silly obscene talk (laughs) joking but then we kind of leave people to really wrestle and then you're just kind of um just just drowning in shame because you just assume anything you're doing is wrong and you wire your brain in a certain way and then you get married and apparently you can just rewire it overnight and you ask around well you will find out it's not that easy to rewire your brain um but one thing that comes to mind when i think of um fornication the old testament scholar in me is there's there's long lists in the book of leviticus about sexual sin and it's not about like orgies or like messing around and these kind of like uh, uh expressions that we were just talking about it's about sexual violence and uh um rape and abuse it's about um uh in leviticus for example in the long list of um sexual sin he's addressing um the author in leviticus is addressing only one um kind of member of society that would be the patriarch or the landowner he's not talking to people who without power um he's talking to the patriarch and he's like yes don't sleep with your blank daughters sisters aunts mothers stepmothers uh step aunts stepdaughters so he's talking to someone who has the power and authority to essentially do whatever he wants with people when their fathers or spouses aren't around. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, and it's actually evil if you do that. Um, and he equates that kind of like sexual abuse against the vulnerable with child sacrifice um, and things like that. So I think if we imagine fornication is primarily about abuse and sexual violence, um, uh, violence against children, violence against the vulnerable, um, I think we would agree immediately. Yeah, that's that's wrong. That's that's evil. The church should be a safe place um, for people. That's evil. And, and yet, in the news every week, there seems to be a new church scandal that's being unveiled about some kind of sexual abuse. Yeah. And like, well, what if we talked at least as much about abuse um, as we do about you know twenty year olds who've been dating for three years, what they're doing while watching Netflix? What if we just gave equal equal amount of airtime? Yep. There might be a lot less abuse. Maybe even none at all. Be pretty powerful. But um, we don't. If we we're not. If we don't interpret that um, holistically or fully, uh, I I bet you anything. When we get to the bottom of chapter five with marriage, we're not going to interpret that well either. Nope. And so sexual immorality and our understanding of gender roles and the place of marriage are going to be connected for sure. Because the idea is like, don't commit fornication. Don't do any sexual thing at all until you're married. And then once you're married, and obviously this is talking to the husband, all of this in our imagination, once you're married, the free-for-all, whatever you want, 
is yours. And wives, you need to submit. Yep. That's your duty. Okay, moving on. And here we are in 2021. Read the news. That's that's where that's gotten us. Like, anyway, it's it's weird. It's it is difficult having this conversation when I'm not like face to face with people. I think like not knowing who's listening. Um, yeah, it's hard. Who who's actually experienced um, sexual violence? Who's worried that they've perpetuated it? Like, I don't know. And so my pastoral heart is like, so there's some stuff here I want to talk about, and some stuff I'm like, can we go for a walk and get real and have a heart to heart? So, but I think that's too, even like, yes, it is hard. Yeah. Cause you don't know who you're talking to, but it's also opening up the place for a conversation and saying it's safe. Um, because that was, that was the thing in like where I, how I grew up was it wasn't okay to talk about these things. Right. It's not that anybody said you can't talk about it, but they would by their lack of response or their uncomfortability when the topic mm-hmm. would come mm-hmm. up. Um, and so there was no place for that. Mm-hmm. And so I think here, uh, that's pretty special that the, that place is made available uh, or trying to at yeah, least. trying. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I remember being told um, in my premarital, uh, or, or it might not have been, like I had a really, really wonderful um, pastor and his wife who did our wedding and helped us with premarital, but we kind of got like premarital talks from a variety of different people. And I remember a talk once where it was like, now it's important that you never, ever, ever talk about your sex life with anybody other than each other. So, okay, great. And we just, we weren't, we weren't married yet. So I was like, that sounds smart. And then we realized the way that we had like internalized that, it became like, you're never allowed to talk about it. Then you're just like left, like, like I think that's the darkness that Paul's referring to in verse six. You just suffer alone in darkness as a couple thinking like, well, this is just the way things are. This is just what's normal. I don't know. We're not supposed to talk about it. So we just, the only kind of space we have to like get a glimpse into like what other couples have is what happens in the movies and on TV. And guess what? None of that's real. Like I I think of how many married couples are like, well, you know, yeah, well, it's just since having kids, you know, I have a low libido or whatever. And so there's so, I, I feel bad. There's something wrong with me, but you know, we're working on it. It's like, wait, what if that was like actually normal and what every single other couple was experiencing? And if we could just shine some light onto it and talk about it together, there might be like an opportunity for great healing. Mm-hmm. Let's shine the light on it. Let's talk about it. Let's have um, not like men's ministries and women's ministries and like, uh, like, 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 a, like I think men's ministries and women's ministries are all good. But when the con- when when at the heart of those ministries is this idea that like you're not actually allowed to talk about anything that's actually affecting your life, <sighs> I think what Paul Paul uh, uh, what what the people who gave us that advice meant was like don't talk crudely about one another, don't expose one another's nakedness to your peers by sharing intimate details of your marriage. Yeah, thank you. That is very good advice. No locker room talk, please, um, about your spouse when you're out with the guys or out with the girls. Um, that's an act of violence against your partner. Um, but for, as a married couple to be able to talk and say, is this normal? (laughs) Yep. That's shining the light. Oh, that's healing. That's good. Why is, why are churches not a place for that? I I think in part because for the last couple hundred years, there's only been men in leadership. And like, I'll just echo what you said, because when we did premarital, that was one of the questions I asked on like the last night. And they're like, do you have any questions? I'm like, yeah. What do I do about like talking about sex? And like, oh, good question. Because 
yeah, we just assume silence over it. Um, but I also want to say too that this doesn't just apply to, I think, married couples mm-hmm. who are wondering about like their sex life and you know their struggles. And yeah, like you said, is this normal? That's very good to talk about. But what about single people too, mm-hmm. who are growing up thinking they can't do anything? Um, and if they do, it's it's shameful, mm-hmm. and so you don't want to talk about it. Um, but there's like that's also very normal, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the struggle of being single and wanting mm-hmm. some sort of intimacy with people, but then also being told you can't. And so whether you do or you do not, you have no place to talk about that and express that with people who are probably feeling the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also needs to be. Mm-hmm opened up for single people to have a place to share their experiences and share what they're feeling and going through. Mm, That's right. Yeah. Purity culture, I think, has um, equipped us with shame and shame puts you into silence and isolation and and, and darkness. And there's this like hopeful note here of um, expose, talk, destigmatize the the, the conversation. And and I, I, I just love the idea of a community that feels safe to just talk and, and be vulnerable and be honest about these things and, and, and believe that there is a God um, who heals us from that shame. And so um, fornication and impurity, um, first and foremost, is going to be something that is against the love and humility, humility and gentleness and peace that we learn in Jesus. Uh, and so I think the, the first thing that should come to our mind is, is um, violence, abuse. And, and remember, there's a lot of sexual, sexual violence and sexual abuse that happens even within marriage. Yep. Um, like, I don't think marital rape was illegal in the United States fully until 1996. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't a crime. So it was like, well, what? Your body belongs to your spouse. So. so that's another one is like, it's not just like these kind of violent uh, stories of abuse that we hear, like these extreme cases. There's also a lot of ways that it's happening um, it, right before us. It, and it seems in ways that are kind of like insidious or invisible. Um, but so that kind of fornication and impurity and greed, it's connected to greed. Um, they're, they're connected, right? So greed, taking something that you think belongs to you, taking something that you feel entitled to. Um, greed and impurity. Um, I deserve this. I worked hard. This is mine. This belongs to me. We do that with our possessions, our property, our money, and with um, human bodies, and so that, that, that's, that, that's connected. Um, and that there's no place uh, for that among the saints because the saints are the people who are imitating Jesus. Um, and so instead of that, it should be thanksgiving. And then he says, be sure of this, no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Uh, and I think he, he didn't say they, they can't go to heaven. Like sometimes we equate the kingdom of God with heaven. He's saying like the kingdom of God that is here in our midst right now um, is a place that's safe for those who are vulnerable to violence. And so it's important that we are always working to protect the most vulnerable and not protect those who've been accused of violence. But if you read the news in this time in history and in, in this part of the world, uh, a lot of the times the, the system is designed in churches to protect the one who's been accused of violence um, and not designed to protect the one who has a story. 
yeah. and um, has been wounded by it. So, yep. That just makes me think of um, just a quick reference for people. If they want something to read, A Church Called Tove by yeah. Scott McKnight talks about, I mean, that's based off of, uh, they frame the whole story around what's, um, what's the church? Willow Creek. Right, sure, yeah. Um, but also gives uh, Scott McKnight co-authors it with somebody else, and I can't remember her name. I feel bad that I can't remember. Um, but they they talk about uh, you know sexual violence in the church and churches that handle it really well, where they do not protect like the integrity of the church because oh well, we don't want to like ruin our reputation, mm-hmm. but who actually just go through the investigation process and say we're here to support uh, the marginalized, the oppressed. Um, so it's a really, really helpful book mm-hmm. I found at least. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, that, that book, it is important and it is convicting and there's a reason why we're not, we're less prone to talk about that stuff, but cause the, the fear of you losing your reputation, um, sometimes blinds us to that trusting the, the Holy spirit, um, to do the work of the spirit. And, uh, I don't know. My dad used to always say, my reputation is in the hands of the Lord. Great, then whom shall I fear? Let's tell the truth. Let's lay it out. Let's do a, a, an outside investigation. Yep. As soon as we hear a story of abuse, may the first words out of my mouth be, I believe you. Hmm. What? Like, like there's a, I think there, there, there's a whole bunch here that, that feels hard to talk about because of this kind of like um, shame that's held our imaginations captive. Um, but, uh, Paul says in verse 8, for once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Uh, so live as children of light. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Tell your story. And um, to those who are being told and entrusted with the story, um, listen. And, and assume that God is, is in this and that um, God is always going to lean towards the vulnerable and towards the least of these. Um, and God is, is our healer. And so... Uh, the system should protect the vulnerable. Um, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Verse 9. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Uh, and then, man, the English it just gets kind of cloudy here. It's, it's weird. It's like in verse 12, he says, for it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. That doesn't mean it's shameful to talk about what happens in the dark clearly because he says, please expose, shine the light in the darkness. There should be a safe place to talk and, and share your story. Um, what he's saying is like, we shouldn't glorify it even in secret. Like, I think there's a, there's nuance there, but because <clears throat> then in verse 13, everything exposed by the light becomes visible for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says sleeper awake. Like it's an invitation to unveil what's been hidden. And those stories that have been hidden have often been hidden by systems that are trying to protect the ones enacting violence, which is again, the flow of the world or a metaphor Paul might use the flow of the Gentiles, but the flow of truth and reconciliation is the flow of Jesus towards the least of these and towards healing and reconciliation. Um, so, so do not be foolish, he says in verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Yeah. So, uh, 
it's kind of a heavy conversation, but it's where this is what we do as pastors. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then I think, um, Dallas, you were mentioning something really interesting about this, this chunk of text, verse 1 to 20. There's a bunch of imperatives, which yeah. is like a command, right? Like, like if I was like, Dallas, get to work. That's a command. An almost. Right? Yeah, it's almost like that. Um, except for imperatives are generally thought of as like a polite command. Like it's um, like you could say Dallas get to work, but it'd be like an encouragement mm-hmm. of like Dallas, this is your task. Mm-hmm. Um, and I encourage you to go and start because this is what you are supposed to do. Um, so in verses, yeah, in verses one to 20, basically like every verb here is an imperative. Mm-hmm. It is Paul saying, uh, like I remember uh, Rob Snow teaching in Greek that one of the easiest ways to translate an imperative into English is to say like, let something. So like, let us go and do this. Mm. Um, that's probably the, the easiest way to understand it in English. Um, so all these things that Paul is saying to do in verses one to 20, just imagine him saying like, let us do this. Let us expose mm-hmm. um, the things that are evil and wicked. Let us uh, make space for those who are felt shame to, to feel loved and accepted. Yeah, I can think an example. So like specifically in verse 10, it says, try to find out. That's probably an imperative. Let us find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Um, in verse 15, it says, be, so it would be, let us be careful then um, how we live. Uh, let us understand the will of the Lord. Let us sing psalms and spiritual hymns. Like it's like, let us give thanks. Like these are things we ought to be doing. It's like a, I, I like that. That You're right. A kind command. Yeah. Yeah. It's an exhortation to be the church, to be what Christ has made you to be. Mm-hmm. And the, the, these imperatives, these commands, like live in love, live in patience, live in gentleness, goodness, goodness. Um, so it'd be a fun study just to like sit down with chapter five and, and write down which ones are the commands. And then though, what's really interesting is that there aren't any imperatives um, in verse 21 and 22. In the next section. But in English, you would never know that because it's worded like an imperative. Wives, submit to your husbands. Yep. But the the way um the Greek language works, that's not a not an imperative. Nope. There's a whole lot. Oh, I feel like a treasure hunter all of a sudden. Like I kind of feel like Indiana Jones when you're reading texts. Um when you find a text of the Bible that seems to really um marginalize certain people. Get out your uh, treasure finding tools. Um, talk to your talk to Dallas or I about how to read Greek or tools you can use if you can't read Greek, um, and discover that uh, there's a lot more that meets the eye. And, and most likely, Paul is um, giving a teaching that bends towards the vulnerable and not towards the the powerful. So uh, I'm super excited. Should we should we do it? Let's get into it. If this is an important um, text in, in your world, in your life, um, the, the, the gender roles of marriage, male headship, uh, Christian patriarchy, or another word for that is complementarianism, um, you could totally like pause here and, and open your Bible and a pen and paper, and you might be able to see a little more about what's going on here. But the first thing to know right away is that, first of all, in, in the original scriptures, there's no chapters and verses that was added in like the 1400s. So just the act of adding chapters and verses, you have to make interpretive decisions. 
So um, you'll notice this if you have your Bible open. Where verse chapter 5 ends uh, would, be very, uh, would, would change the message if um, the first few stanzas in chapter 6 were a part of chapter 5. So here it's wives and husbands. Then chapter 6 opens with um, children and parents and then slaves and masters. And there are, so there are these kind of like different relationships. And, and they seem a connected part of Paul's argument. But even we're, do, we're doing it even now in this podcast because we're just talking about episode 5 or chapter 5 and then next week chapter 6. Um, but ideally, you hold it all as one. So not only did the original scriptures not have chapters and verses, they also, in Greek, don't have commas and periods. So we also have to make a lot of interpretive decisions to choose where a paragraph begins and where a paragraph ends. And um, like, there's there's obviously like, Greek is a, a sophisticated language. They have ways of like, there, there are ways of understanding where one thought ends and another one begins. But we could add a little comma here or a little comma there and change an argument pretty substantially. Um, so no matter what, to translate uh, a text from one language to another requires interpretation. And then not just from one language to the next, but from one millennium to the next, one part of the world to the next, there's going to be decisions that have been made and our decisions sometimes serve some and not others. So um, here's a, a really cool example. In your Bible, um, Ephesians 5 verse 21 probably says something like, um, submit to one another out of love for Christ. In the NRSV, it says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, the translation I grew up reading was submit. Submit was the big word. Um, but in NRSV, it's be subject, which is maybe worse, but I've never, that word doesn't really seem to, I don't know, provoke me in any way. So be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so that word, um, be subject or submit, doesn't occur in verse 22. It's been added in by translators. In the Greek, it says, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands, and then later on, and then husbands, you do it this way. So the submission goes both ways. It's mutual. Husbands and wives submit to each other. And, and before I even go into that, the vast majority of people who made up the early church wouldn't have been married. Um, married couples is probably the minority, especially um like monogamous married couples, like like our understanding of marriage in, in, in this part of the world is, is very different than in the ancient world. Like um, a husband in, in the Greco-Roman world could, could have a, a wife and she's responsible for birthing his heirs. But he would also have all sorts of other um, ways of, he, he would have all sorts of other sexual partners. And so marriage was, I don't know, when people are like, I uphold a, a traditional, traditional biblical view of marriage. I'm like, you mean like Abraham? Moses, like what? <laughs> no, no, you don't. Um, but I, I understand what they mean is like lifelong committed monogamy, which is definitely probably better than that Greco-Roman context. But so, so the, let's say the majority or like maybe half of the people in the congregation are married. So when he says be subject to one another, he's not saying husbands and wives be subject to one another. Christians, believers, all of you, children, parents, slaves, masters, husbands, wives, rich, poor, all of you, um, you are submitting to one another. That is how you imitate Jesus. You go downwards towards the cross, not upwards towards glory. So mutual submission is like the first thing for, for all of us. And then he addresses the first group of people he addresses specifically are wives, which I think would be shocking. You're sitting in the congregation and whoever's reading this letter to us from Paul, Paul's in jail, stands up and reads it. You're listening, you're listening, and all of a sudden it's like, wives, there's like four of you in the building. What? What? <laughs> 
husbands. Oh, that's us. And then, you know, later on, children, slaves, like, it's pretty profound that he addresses the wives directly and he addresses them first, but he never says, wives, submit to your husbands. The verb's not there. It's been added because in English, it, it, it's awkward to say wives to your husbands. Um, so I don't know. When, when I teach that, sometimes people get overwhelmed. They're like, so what's the point of reading the Bible? Like, oh, shoot, that's, that's definitely not the intent. I think um, reading the scriptures in community is the ideal where you can wrestle and, and explore and and hear each other's stories of how the text lands with each person. But um, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands, as you are to the Lord. Um, oh, there's so much. I can't, I want to talk about this for two hours, but I won't. Unless people listening to this are like, I want to talk about it for two hours. And then let me tell you, we could have a whole evening to just unpack this together. But um, <clears throat> there are three... Um, power dynamics that Paul addresses um, at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Um, husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And if we aren't reading this responsibly, we could mistakenly put husbands, parents, and masters on one side and then put them with Jesus, uh, i.e. the incarnate God. So husbands are gods in their marriage. And parents are gods in their household, and the master is a god to the slave. We could accidentally do that, right? Like in, in the, these power dynamics, husbands, parents, and masters are the gods, and wives, children, and slaves are the sinful, lost humanity that needs, lest their lives erode into complete chaos, they need the godliness, the righteousness of their husband father, master. We could accidentally do that. It's probably important that we don't, and it's probably important that if we have accidentally slipped as a culture into that, that we call that out and, uh, you know, ask that demon its name and then kick it out. <sighs> um, so that, that, that's probably not what Paul's doing, but that's okay. He says, wives be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. How are you subject to the Lord? Um, I, not out of fear, not out of uh, ter terror, and um, I, I very much choose lovingly and joyfully to, to follow Jesus because Jesus has been humble and gentle and loving and kind. Jesus never forced anybody to do anything. Um, people come to Jesus and they're like, here's my way of seeing the world. Jesus is like, great, it's not my way. Have a good life. He doesn't grab them by the throat and drag them along like, like like there's a sense of like jesus is like you should consent to following me you should it's an invitation you're all invited but i'm not forcing anybody um you consent uh to trust jesus and follow jesus and, and jesus um kind of earns your trust with his humility and kindness and gentleness so when we submit to one another as believers it's consent consensually <laughs> Um, and then he, he talks about um, headship, and that's another weird one. So in our culture, we associate head with authority, like the head is the boss, which interestingly, Paul never does that. And the Greek word used for head is never the word used for authority. When um, Paul talks about head, he's most often talk, most likely talking about source, as in like the head waters, like you have a glacier that's the source of the river. The head is considered the source of the body. not um, so, so your head is where your brain is. 
um, beliefs around like that's where your soul is or that's where that's where life is and it flows into the rest of the body but a head can't do anything without the body a head's gonna die without a body and a head a, a body can't do anything without a head a head and a body are interdependent they literally need one another you can't just be a head and be like this body sucks and then just like remove yourself and go attach yourself to another body it's impossible so there's a sense of dependency and, and unity here and source so let's just take a real quick time travel back 2000 years where um women were getting married at like 12 or 13 years old to men like 40 and up um the the women at least in especially in the greek context um can't own their own property. They don't have any share in their father's in, like inheritance from their father. They can't participate in politics. They can't own property. They can't go to the market and participate in the exchange of goods. Um, so their husband is literally their source of stability, security, money, uh, reputation, honor. They are completely vulnerable. They're a 14-year-old girl, uh, marries a 55-year-old man. The power differential there is huge. This is not like a 22-year-old man marrying a 21-year-old girl that, you know, your parents love and you think it's all great and you're kind of peers and equals um, different context. So, like, yeah, the husband is the source of the, the woman. It's like in that ancient context, the, the source of your life. And in our context now, that, that's not true. Women can uh, participate in politics, own property, have your own private bank account. If your husband left you, you're going to be okay. Uh, there are a whole bunch of supports in place. You could go open your own checking account. You could have your own job. Um, you could have your own mortgage. Um, and those are things that um, for most of human history, women have not even been able to imagine. So the vulnerability of the women in the, in, in the church Paul's addressing is a lot is extreme. So we always have to hold that. Um, women couldn't divorce men, but men could divorce women and divorce them regularly in the ancient Greco world. Um, if your husband left you, um, that would often be to... to submit you to, to death, to complete destitution. So there's a something there about headship that is profound to, to imagine. Um, and then I guess the most important bit here to me is that um, uh, just as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. There, there's nothing uh, forced in this. Um, yeah, but okay. So that's what the, the wives get. The same way we follow Jesus, uh, you know, this is how we, uh, we, we submit and, and to, to, our, to our spouse. And then husbands. Um, I think at this point, um, if there were husbands in the room when this part of the letter was read, um, many of them would have gotten up and walked out. Um, what Paul says here is so radical that I don't think our minds can comprehend. Paul would have been just lauded as a complete radical here. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What? No, no, no. The, church, the, the wife gives herself up for the husband. The wife gives up her career goals, her life, her body, so that he can prosper in the calling that God has put on his life. That's how I've grown up in this. The wife gives up her life so that he can do God's work. Nope. First, first, first uh, point of order here. Um, give up your life the same way Christ gave up his life for her um, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of waters in the word. Um, so um, it's not that the husband can, a husband can't make a wife holy, obviously. 
that would be a horrible. Can you imagine singing that song in Christ alone and my husband? Um, only Jesus can uh, make us holy. <laughs> only Jesus can wash us by the word. But as, as Jesus does that, um, with love and gentleness and humility and patience and kindness, um, that's how we treat one another. Um, so he, he says, um, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. So in the Greco-Roman world, washing and cleansing is um, in the realm of domestic tasks washing laundry, washing children, cleansing, cleaning. That's women's work. Paul very cleverly says that that's Jesus's work. The lowly household task of changing diapers and mopping floors and cleaning toilets. So that washing, the work of washing, he, Paul says that that's what Jesus does. So he's getting to something quite controversial. Um so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind so that she may be holy and without blemish. So the work of cleaning, ironing, stain control, this is laundering language. This is domestic duty language that Paul's framing what Jesus is doing as the work of um, a, a, a household worker is pretty profound. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. And then this part is where I think it gets, it, there's anger, uh, how do I explain this? He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body. What, why are we all of a sudden talking about hate, hating his own body? Who hates his own body, of course. He's obviously addressing something specific. So I'm just gonna just talk about verse 29 for a second here and then I'll stop. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. So most likely, one of the, and this is true in, in, in the majority of the, of the world, Dallas, I think you've taken a course on violence against women in the world, right? Global violence against women? Yep. So you probably know some stats about how like common domestic violence is. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And it's super common in, in, in Christian and households. Um, it, it's common all over the world. Um, I, I think it'd be really interesting for anyone from Awaken to just send a message to Steph Lazert and ask her about um, when she did missionary work in other parts of the world, how commonplace was domestic violence? She'll tell you stories of, uh, <clears throat> it was common for wives of the elders and the pastors to have bruises. Um, and it was just common. It was like, well, you know, I stepped out of line. I deserved it. So you have women sitting in the church who have bruises on their bodies that were put there by their husbands. Just, it's normal. No one's going to ask about that bruise, that black eye, that swelling, that scratch, that whatever. Paul is, I, okay. Why, you don't hate your own body. You're not covering your body in bruises. Why are you covering her body in bruises? He's calling out domestic violence. This is about domestic, like, it, it's about a bunch of things, but it's definitely, certainly also about domestic violence. Why does you, if, if your spouse has, um, scratches and bruises and, and red marks because you, you grabbed her by the wrists and, and, and pushed her out of your way or you, 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 uh, you know, slammed the door in her face and her, her fingers got caught or like these kind of um, big ways and small ways that the domestic violence takes place all over the place. Um, the marks end up on her body. He, he's just like, hey, instead of marking her body with wounds, Jesus doesn't do that to the church. But Jesus' body gets covered in wounds, right? At the cross. 
Jesus heals bodies. When you look at the followers of Jesus and Jesus ministry, he heals hurting bodies all the time. He's touching wounded bodies and healing them, um, dignifying them and honoring them and touching them always with gentleness and care and dignity and um, with consent. And he himself um, bears on his body wounds inflicted on him that he chose um, on behalf of the church. Therefore, there should never, ever, ever, ever be any form of domestic violence in the life of the saints. Um, so this whole um, piece about um, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. So washing someone's body is like dignity and care. Um, so Jesus presents to the church to himself. And guess what? She has no bruises. She has no spots. She has no wounds. But in the book of Revelation on that wedding day, Jesus has wounds. Like this is the most powerful um, judgment against domestic violence. The husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. No one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it as Christ does for the church. So nourishment is about um, feeding. Tenderness is often a word we associate with mothers to babies. Washing and cleansing is work we associate with um, women and housework. In this um, argument, Paul puts all of the woman's work on the husband. Cleansing, nourishing, and tenderly care is biblical manhood. Uh, and he, he, he's, he's very um, uh, bluntly and yet pastorally condemning domestic violence. That must be part of this. And reminding that you love your spouse the way you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, he who loves his wife loves himself. And so that's really profound. And then, so, so um, you give up, the husbands sacrifice themselves for their wife. Uh, and it has to be tender and, and nourishing and cleansing. And then there at the end, um, verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then I love in verse 32, he's like, but this isn't about marriage. I'm not saying um, that marriage um, is the center, that Jesus and the church is what he's talking about. This is a great mystery. I am applying it to Christ and the church. I'm not applying it to marriage. I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself and a wife um, respect her husband. Um, Dallas, do you have it there, what the what the Greek is in verse 33? For which word? Um, uh, love and then respect. Love is, uh, it's agape, but it's in the verb form. Um, is it imperative? It is an imperative. Profound. And what was the other word? Respect. Respect. Um, that was not an imperative. It's not an imperative. No, it's a present middle subjunctive. And what is the Greek word for respect? It is uh, phobeo. Phobeo. It's like a profound measure of respect, like reverence. Or... Hmm. But doesn't that say something that um, love your wife is a command, an imperative? Yeah. And respect her husband is not? No. It's almost like... It's just a verb. You, you will... It, your marriage ought to be such that... Like, obviously, you respect each other. Can you imagine believing that... Um, Husbands don't have to respect their wives. That is absurd. Can you imagine? That's, that's like saying, can you imagine um, wives don't have to love their husbands? I don't love you. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. That, that's absurd. Like, I don't know. 
there was a book that came out once upon a time called Love and Respect. Oh, I know it. Yep. Yeah. That men need respect and women need love. That you were designed for that. Oh my gosh. I went to seminars. It was like men make eye con- men don't make eye contact because it's like alpha male. This is why men don't look women in the eyes. Oh my gosh. It, it was just like toxic from cover to cover. Um, and we're still, reco- our, our, I think like um, the, the Old Testament talks about um, melting swords into gardening tools, melting swords into plowshares. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think there's an idea that's been weaponized um, and I've, interp- I've inherited that weapon and I'm not going to be like, oh, well, I guess I'll go use this to cut things down. I'm going to melt it down into a gardening tool. And so I've inherited an Ephesians 5 that was weaponized against women um, and, and ultimately ended up hurting men as well. Um, and so instead of just like yield to that or um, erase that, I get to be a part of pulling life from it. And uh, it, it's an exciting and it's a, a powerful, exciting text. Um, all Christians everywhere are to submit to one another. All Christians everywhere are to um embody the love of Christ for one another. So love and respect towards one another is the, the number one attribute. We love each other and we respect each other. People who are not as Christian as me, not as mature as me, I love and respect them. Uh, people who are different than me, like love and respect goes both ways at all times. And here it's like this, like wives, you submit to your husbands the same way you submit to Jesus. Remember Jesus? Oh yeah, I love Jesus. I would follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And husbands, then there's this long section about laundering and feeding and tenderness and that you don't do anything to your wife's body that you would not want done to yours. And so it, 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 it's very provocative. He, he, he flips the script. This would have been highly offensive to a, a Greco-Roman understanding of, of gender and marriage. And so I would say um, in conclusion to that, spiel i want to go on there's so much more in the greek that's just profound but um the household code in the roman world was everything um they believed that the the whole nation would erode into chaos if you didn't have structure in this way and so these kind of roles were everything um so the caesar is the head of the roman household that's why we call him father and then in the same way the nation submits to Caesar, so wives ought to submit to their husbands. This is like a very common way of talking about the, the household code. And children ought to submit to their parents as the children of Caesar submit to Caesar. So there's this like top-down, all the backbone of society is this role of husbands and wives. Um, and it, it was invented by the Greeks and the Romans. And yet in our culture, it's kind of the domain of the ultra-religious. And so Paul is actually um, lifting women up in this text and calling men down, in, in not with men below women or, or women above men, but in a system that is already super stratified where the husband is way on top. He's just like 55-year-old man and she's a 14-year-old girl. For, for Paul to call the husband down to feed her and, and wash her clothes and, and nourish her and be tender is like, whoa, that is radical. And then to lift women up into like, you follow Jesus the same way Peter followed Jesus. You're an apostle. Um, he's moving towards equality. Uh, he's moving towards uh, dignity and honor and safety for both. And somehow... In 2,000 years, this text is, is regularly being used to push women down 
you need to be a woman who cleans the house and cares for and feeds your husband and your children and, and lifts men up, exalts men as you are on the same level as God. You are the God in your house. You are the master of these slaves of yours. It's not good. <laughs> not good. And so we'll see you next time. Um, <clears throat> for some reason, um, chapter five and six have been split there because the very beginning of chapter six is then children obey your parents and then slaves obey your masters. And uh, if we aren't careful, um, that argumentation, and, and, and I'll just say this as a teaser for next time, a lot of the time in, in history when it was people in the West doing translation and theology work was during the plantation economy, uh, which founded the United States, which founded the Western world, like the cotton industry, the cotton picking industry is what has made the world what it is now. And we, so maybe there are no longer, um, it's not a transatlantic slave trade um, where enslaved Africans are picking cotton, um, but we're all still wearing cotton and that cotton came from somewhere. So that um, the plantation economy, um, it was often the plantation um, master who was also at seminary. And so our imaginations have been warped by the slaveholder religion. And we get to unwarp that and call that out as the evil that it is. And that's part of the work we get to do now and here. And this podcast is just a little taste of that. Um, but working it out together at the communion table is where we really do it. The communion table in a particular place. So it's... Uh, it's really powerful. Um, so in conclusion, um, Ephesians chapter five begins and ends on this note. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. <laughs> <laughs>